Welcome to Museum Archipelago. I'm Ian Elsner. Museum Archipelago is your audio guide through the landscape of museums. Each episode is never longer than 15 minutes. So let's get started. My name is Bill Bradbury. I am currently the president and chairman of the board of the Niagara Falls Underground Railroad Heritage Area Commission. The Niagara Falls Underground Railroad Heritage Area encompasses the entire city of Niagara Falls, New York. I like to think of the entirety of uh, western New York along the rivers and the lakes as a sort of an open uh, crime scene. In other words, uh, you know, this is where it was taking place. Uh, Two sorts of crimes, the crime of holding people in bondage and then the man-made crime of trying to escape. But the whole Niagara frontier really uh, was the stage for what was happening here. And what was happening in the years before the American Civil War, and even a little bit after, were escapes to Canada. For some, Niagara Falls was the last terminus of the Underground Railroad. When you look at Niagara Falls on a map, and if you look at how close we are to Canada, it just looks like millimeters. Before the bridges were built, and before railroads became popular, people crossed the Niagara River by any means necessary. The good news is that many of the people of Niagara Falls, black, white, native, all kinds of people, were almost, uh, you know, avid abolitionists. They were, you know, um, excited about what was going on. On the other hand, there were people who were trying to recapture their property. So we had bondsmen and uh, slave capturers and all sorts of marshals who would hang around the border crossings uh, looking to snatch somebody, whether they had the right documentation or not. At the same time as the escapes, Niagara Falls was also a major tourist destination. For some white enslavers from the South, Niagara Falls was a chance to get out of the southern heat and relax at a luxury hotel like the Cataract House in the cool mist of the falls. Well, you could sit out on the porch of the Cataract House if you were from down south with your servants and, and be cool, have a great meal, be served by waiters of color, 80% of whom came from slaveholding states and worked right here in Niagara Falls in a very interesting way, a sort of duplicitous role. These men were very highly skilled and trained in the hospitality industry as waiters. But at the same time, under the tutelage of the head waiter, John Morrison, was not only teaching these men and women how to be great servants in the hotel, but also how to be very powerful and effective abolitionists who would help people who had been brought here as servants from the South by their masters to get across that little line to get across that river where just that imaginary line between the United States and Canada made all the difference in the world. On one side, you're free. On this side, you're a slave. The hardest and cruelest stories I think of are those of the young women. Often, you know, 14, 15 years old, uh, brought into uh, slavery, uh, used as uh, uh, lady servants, and you can only uh, just use your imagination for what other treachery they must have faced and why they were desperate to get the help of these young black waiters who were eager to help them get out of captivity. So the city of Niagara Falls, the African-Americans who lived here, 
earned a reputation to the extent that two or three, maybe more newspapers reported across the United States that if you're planning to travel from the South with your servants and you plan to stay in the city of Niagara Falls, beware. You don't want to be hanging around at the cataract house because they're stealing your slaves, taking your property. Those waiters uh, during that short period of time, I'd say 1850s or so up until the end of the Civil War, were probably the most active underground railroad cabal that you can ever imagine. These guys were well organized. They were well trained. They knew exactly what they were doing. And John Morrison, the head waiter, in my view, a huge hero. His name belongs up there with Douglas and Tubman and others learned how to organize these men into a fighting force. Uncovering information about John Morrison and popularizing him represent the heritage area's two main focuses, historical research and interpretation. The historical research has been going on for 10 years. And most of the historical research was done here by a a group of uh, highly skilled professional uh, historical researchers. We have limited our stories to our historical experiences with the Underground Railroad here over a very limited period of time. We're not trying to tell the whole story. There are thousands of stories all over the United States. There are probably tens of thousands of people uh, who we would like to know, but we cannot. What we can know is what happened here in Niagara Falls. We can identify abolitionists. We can identify waiters, some of whom are buried here in our local cemetery. I suspect we have living uh, descendants of some of these heroes. I like to think of them as heroes. Uh, But the local people probably have no idea. That's the sad thing about not preserving history, is that we have a tendency to forget. In a few months, on the weekend of May 4th, 2018, Niagara Falls Underground Railroad Heritage Center will open to the public. The decision to create an interpretive center really was probably inevitable. I mean, I'm I'm not so sure there would be a more effective way to bring all of these stories to life. You know, the exciting thing to me is how many people are involved in what we're doing here and how, you know, a tiny little voice in Niagara Falls along with a, you know, a chorus of others, can make enough noise over a period of time to turn the story back around to the truth, to uncover reality and to share it with the world. And we're so excited to be able to do that. I met Bill while working on this Heritage Center. In fact, this is the first podcast episode I've done about a museum that I've had some role in. I was interested in talking to him because this is his first foray into the museum world. And he told me he was shocked by the lack of non-white faces in the industry. It was probably most startling to me as I really got into the museum business and the supporting uh, industries around it uh, to find that it was just not diverse at all. Very, very few uh, minorities of any sort uh, within the industry that I could see. What I discovered is that I'm not the only one who noticed this. The Mellon Foundation uh, did a study recently that reveals that only about 4% of the nation's museum leadership is African-American. You know, according to them, 
and I'll quote them, diverse educational pipelines into curatorial conservation and other art museum careers are going to be critical if art museums wish to have truly diverse staff and inclusive cultures. But I think it goes deeper than that. You know, what we show on museum floors, obviously, is a result of somebody's curation. But beyond that, within the industry, I discovered that there's lots of components that I didn't know anything about until I got involved in the beginnings of this interpretive center. You know, it takes a lot more than a curator and and an artifact to tell a story. Um, In our case, we didn't have an awful lot of artifacts, so we have to be able to tell stories. The stories that we had access to, many of them were told by by Europeans um, from their perspective. And that there were very few opportunities to tell the stories from the perspective of those who lived this. My question was, what can we do while we're doing this project to introduce students of color to the industry? So Bill presented this question, and one of the fabricators on the Heritage Center project, a company called USA out of Philadelphia, answered. And what happened is almost magical. Uh, the good people, my good friend Emily Seish at uh, USA, reached out to Lincoln. Lincoln University is a uh, historically black college. Uh, they had just inaugurated this new museum studies program. And so we were able to partner with them and to bring, uh, uh, I guess, about a dozen of their uh, all uh, African-American students uh, to come into the real world. You know, they came to the uh, to the fabrication site in Philadelphia, sat at the big table with the rest of us and got an opportunity to see how this business really works. So we're going to try to do the same thing here uh, with the um, local universities. Uh, we're already working with Niagara University. The opening of the of the interpretive center is just the beginning. We're just getting started here. I I, I wonder what it's going to look like fifty years from now. Uh, if if we are successful in fifty years, uh, a new Mellon Foundation study will reveal that now, perhaps twenty percent of the nation's museum leadership will be African American, or at least not just European. So. We're moving in in that direction, and it gives me chills to uh, to go to events now and hear echoes. And now what I'm hearing uh, from the people, the residents of Niagara Falls, is support for this entire concept. You know, they've opened their arms and said, wow, who knew? I'm proud to announce Club Archipelago a new, members-only podcast that reviews interactive media exhibits. So what can you expect from Club Archipelago? Well, my day job is as a programmer for a museum media firm. I write code that ends up on touchscreens for museums. Part of the reason I started Museum Archipelago was to explore a bigger picture of the museum world, one that considered what a museum means. But Club Archipelago returns the focus to touchscreens in museums. Touchscreens are at best overlooked and at worst derided, and yet they are an increasingly big part of the museum experience. Each episode, I'll dive deep into a piece of interactive media. 
In listening, you'll learn more about the design process, be able to identify what I consider to be common mistakes, and give your next museum experience a new dimension. Club Archipelago is available exclusively to my Patreon supporters. To get access, go to patreon.com slash museumarchipelago, or visit the show notes for this episode. Nothing about the main feed will change, but if you're interested in more, consider signing up. Thank you for your support. And because I don't always get the chance to say this, thanks for choosing Museum Archipelago to be your audio guide through the landscape of museums. This has been Museum Archipelago. We hope you enjoyed your visit. For more information or to submit feedback, go to museumarchipelago.com or museum underscore go on Twitter. Next time, bring a friend.